Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. On today's episode, we are very excited to be joined by Kay Sabil Rachman, who is the president of Demos, a think tank committed to advancing policy and social change on issues of racial justice, democracy, and inequality. Dr. Rachman is also an associate professor of law at Brooklyn Law School and co-chair of the Law and Political Economy Project. He's previously been visiting professor at Harvard Law School, a fellow at the Roosevelt Institute, and a fellow at New America, and he is the author of Democracy Against Domination and Civic Power, Rebuilding American Democracy in an Era of Crisis. Sabil, welcome to Race and Democracy. Thanks so much for having me, Dr. Joseph. Well, this is our first podcast in the context of the coronavirus. And because of all the really incredible, powerful work that you do uh, vis-a-vis democracy and democratic institutions and people of color, especially black and brown communities in the United States and globally, I want to talk about uh, the impact that COVID-19 has had on communities of color. We're getting devastating uh, reports about disproportionate black death, um, disproportionate brown death, uh, poor black communities, segregated communities not having access to testing, um, being forced to be on the front lines of this COVID crisis. So I want us to dig into that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's um, one of the one of the biggest dangers, I think, of the of the virus when it first started becoming a big, a big crisis was, you know, people were saying we've got you've got you might hear some my four month old in the background here um, as we're sheltered in place here in New York. But, um, you know, when the virus first started becoming a big crisis, a lot of folks are saying, well, you know, the virus is a great equalizer. Everybody's affected. Right? Uh, we're all humans and we're all at risk. Uh, but, you know, if viruses may not be able to discriminate across humans, but people and policies do. And what we really see here is that the virus is layering on top of all the systemic inequities baked into our economy, baked into our politics, and amplifying that times a thousand. So when I think about a, a place like Milwaukee, you know, in Milwaukee County, uh, I'm sure folks are, have seen the numbers already. Black Americans make up about 25 to 26% of the population, but account for over 80% of the fatalities. Now, this is also the same county where just a couple of weeks ago, we saw the primary election proceed with most of the polling places shut down in a county where that accounts for most of the black voters in the state. And I mentioned that to highlight that the, this crisis is really a crisis of racial capitalism. And to me, what that means is, you know, you think about every way in which our economy has put black and brown workers, black and brown families at in higher levels of risk and danger from pollution, yeah. from uh, uh, in precarious work and from diluting their political power, all of which comes to bear in this moment. And, and let's unpack that, Sabil, because when you talk about racial capitalism for, for our, our listeners, uh, that's a big word. And yeah, you, absolutely. When you think about racial capitalism. We know what capitalism means. But when we think about racial capitalism, um, what are we saying? Are we making a case that the, the entire system, the capitalist system is racialized and exploits and extracts resources from black and brown bodies and communities? What do we mean by that? And then we'll, we'll get deeper in. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. And so um, I think people are used to thinking about the idea of inequality, right? We have an economy right now that has high levels of inequality. I think that's become familiar to a lot of folks. But what I think is really important to understand is that that inequality is rooted in a history of extraction of wealth from black and brown workers and from black and brown communities. So I'll give two just quick concrete examples. When you think about uh, why work is so risky and dangerous without labor protections for so many black and brown workers, that system of extractive labor, risky, dangerous labor, has its origins in the Jim Crow South, for example. Uh, and going back even further back in our history of a country that built so much of its wealth on the legacy of slavery. The, another example, if you think about now why we have so much wealth concentrated, say, in Wall Street or private equity funds and hedge funds, a lot of that wealth comes from acute, uh, the, the systems of, say, predatory lending, uh, debt, uh, municipal debt, student debt, uh, consumer debt that especially preys on black and brown communities. And that goes back to the 2008 crisis and even way beyond uh, when you look at the, the racial wealth gap that has been around for a long time. So, so much of the inequality is actually premised on extraction from and the uh, sub suppression of economic opportunity for black and brown communities that you can't talk about economic equality without actually talking about race. Now, when we think about where we're at, this COVID crisis hit us in the context of the Democratic primary. And we had a contest between many, many different challengers. But when we think about Joe Biden and some of these Democratic centrists versus people like Elizabeth Warren, and of course, Bernie Sanders, I think the Sanders um, ethos was absolutely, and Warren talking about a new deal, right? a new deal for all people. I don't necessarily think they were great on race matters and they've been criticized for this because in a way they saw economic justice as the linchpin to this new deal. Um, where yeah. I think about justice based on what you said about racial capitalism and what we know about racial segregation in public schools, what we know about mass incarceration, what we know about environmental justice um, and inequality, what we know about immigration, I think that race um, is at the core of trying to get economic justice, to try to get gender justice, to try to get justice for LGBTQ communities, uh, poor people, people who have mental health, people who are immigrants and undocumented. If you don't understand that race is central to that, um, you're gonna be, you're gonna be in trouble. So when we think about where we're at, what do you think of the political climate that we're at in the sense of to do what is going to be necessary um, in the future. Probably we're not going to see it in 2020 because we've seen um, uh, President Trump's response and the White House response has been um, not just incompetent, but really criminal. The response yeah. has been criminal um, to poor people and communities of color. Um, hospital workers don't have PPEs. So what can we do now? We've seen different people write op-eds and we've got strong people like Kianga Yamada-Taylor who's writing strong things in the New York Times and the New Yorker, um, Jelani Cobb, others who, are, who are really doing great things. And we've seen workers protest at Amazon and other places, the fact that they're not getting protective equipment. They've had uh, small hourly increases, $2 an hour, Instacart and other places. What can we do now? And I know you study these institutions, you think about this, you write about it, you speak about it. 
and Demos is really um, a wonderful think tank that, that advocates for deep, deep democracy. Democracy that's not a partisan style democracy, but that's for all people. Um, yeah. Where are we now? What can we do even while sheltering in place when we think about solutions? One, to protect people, raise money for families that are really, really vulnerable. But if racial capitalism really speeds up black death and brown death and vulnerability, what can we do now to halt this? Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, it, it's, it can be overwhelming, right, to think about just the, the moment we're in. So many of us are afraid for ourselves, for our loved ones, for our communities. You know, we're now at the stage of the pandemic here in New York where uh, there's not a person who doesn't, isn't directly affected or doesn't know someone who is on the front lines or is, uh, has passed from the, the COVID virus itself. Oh, and, you know, uh, we're now 22 million and counting of people who've lost their jobs, starting with black and brown workers in particular. So it's, it is, it is a, a hard challenge. I, I think that's right. There are uh, a couple of things that are front of mind in this moment right now that can actually build us towards the kind of uh, longer term country that we really need to be if we want to sur survive and thrive in the long run. The, the first is supporting each other, mutual aid, and, and the, the health crisis itself, right? We have uh, essential workers who are putting them, themselves on the line to keep us fed and care for the sick in, in the hospital system. Uh, but there's a lot of uh, support that folks need to get, to get by and um, a lot of organizing happening to help provide that support to one another. Uh, that's really in the absence of leadership from Washington, right? That's, that is what democracy and government should be for. We have state governments that, you know, some of which are stepping up, but we're really having to uh, lean on our communities in a moment of a leadership vacuum. And, and even the, Andrew, Governor Cuomo in your state, right? New York is my hometown. Governor Cuomo has been lauded for leadership, but at the same time, there's all these prisoners, Rikers Island and others, who are, who are languishing at times with the virus who have not been charged with anything, but are caught up in the money bail system, which is connected to convict leasing and racial slavery. And this yeah. question of black people. Absolutely. And I think this is why your earlier point, Dr. Joseph, about uh, centering race in a deeper way is so critical. You know, while it's true that the governor has done some really important things in terms of the pandemic response, you know, they just passed a, a budget that actually took a really important, urgently needed bail reform set of proposals off the table and have not done anything about the prison crisis in context of the pandemic. And that's about perpetuating a system of mass incarceration that preys on black and brown communities in particular. And if we're not willing to tackle those types of systems in this moment where there's such an immediate urgent need, then people are going to keep dying and being hurt, right? And not just now, but in the future. So I think that's a really good example of the, what I think is the second challenge is in addition to the healthcare crisis, we need to put the spotlight and put the pressure on these deeper systemic issues that are actually about the crisis and about what was here before COVID hit. So mass incarceration was a crisis before COVID hit, but it is an even more dangerous crisis in context of a pandemic. Yes. Same with housing and debt. We need debt forgiveness. We need to move to a world where um, we're, we're having solving the housing crisis and the affordability crisis. And by debt forgiveness, you're talking about student loan debt. People have crushing student, student loan. loan. Student loan debt. You know, how are folks going to even pay the interest on their debt now as people are losing their jobs? How are people going to make rent? 
these are systemic issues that have to do with race and inequality that were here before COVID, but COVID makes it that much worse. Yeah. So we need to put that pressure. And, and I want to talk about racial segregation in a democracy, because I think one of the things we're seeing is this idea that people in low income, racially segregated areas don't have access to tests and people in high yeah. income areas are being tested at six times that rate. So when we think about racial segregation in the United States, there's a reason why communities are racially segregated. Uh, poor communities are more marginalized and then more easily identifiable. And wealthy communities do what scholars call opportunity hoarding, where they have yes. the best, the safest um, streets with not, without a lot of police intervention so their kids don't die or even have run-ins. They have um, a tax base that exclusively just goes to their public schools. Um, yep. We have environmental advantages. They have the best education, at least on paper, right? That can then be leveraged for the best private colleges or public universities in the world. And so let's talk about racial segregation in the context of pandemic, because racial segregation is also um, wealth inequality. It's also the segregation of poor black and brown people who might be HIV positive, who might be cash poor, who might have diabetes and stress and heart and asthma conditions, from, from young children all the way up to adults and seniors. And these are the people who are receiving the less care, while even in the context Absolutely. of COVID, people who are in racially segregated, all white, at times with smatterings of, of brown and, and black people in there are getting the best access. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one way to think about these systemic issues is that they uh, create the, the underlying potential for the kind of mass death that we're seeing now that is focused in black and brown communities, right? We, our inability to tackle these systemic issues in say 10 years ago, five years ago, even two years ago, that bill is coming due now because we've left these disparities in place. And so when, uh, when, when folks say, well, you know, COVID has nothing to do with housing or with segregation or with urban planning, or with uh, where we put the, the, the power plant and where the pollution goes. It has everything to do with all of those exactly. things. Yeah. And so I think that's one of the biggest challenges in terms of what we can do now is the more we can put pressure in the public conversation and on our elected officials at all levels to understand that this COVID crisis is about all of these things and that we need to, we need to speak to all of these systemic issues now. And I would say, by the way, that it's not that we don't know what to do about these. We know how to tackle segregation. We know how to do debt cancellation. We know how to do, um, how to speak to environmental justice, right? We, there, the policy ideas are out there. Uh, we see that, you know, not just in our work, but lots of great folks doing amazing work on the policies. What's missing is the political will and the pressure to force uh, a, poli a, a, a policymaking system that still does not, actually center or is not accountable to black and brown communities in the ways that it needs to be. And, and I want to um, talk about that point. Uh, when we think about the work that you do and what we've seen, um, especially since the Supreme Court Shelby v. Holder decision, I live in Texas um, yeah. and there's been so much voter suppression here, but also nationally. And we see what happened with the election in Wisconsin. They tried to rig Republicans and conservatives tried to rig an election in Wisconsin for a judge, but the Democratic judge still won anyway. 
So we're seeing um, 19th century reconstruction and redemption era um, Potemkin election laws, laws that are just, it's not real, they're anti-democratic. These are, these are designed to promote a politics and practice of white supremacy. What can um, small d advocates of democracy do against that, against the racial gerrymandering, against um, all these anti-democratic measures that have been passed by states and that the federal government under Trump, uh, Jeff Sessions, Bob Barr, are just really supporting, you know, what, 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 where can people turn? Because you're right that this anti-Black um, anti uh, public's policy converges and interfaces with mass incarceration, with immigration policy, um, anti-immigration policy, anti-Muslim policies, but it also converges with this anti-democratic institutional wave that we've seen where we don't want in this country all American citizens even to vote. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I think for, uh, for a country that claims democracy as its birthright, it's so important to remember that we are actually not a democracy. We've never successfully in the history of this country been a full and inclusive democracy because even you mentioned uh, reconstruction and redemption, I'm so glad you did, because even at the, the sort of high water mark of after the Civil War, amending the Constitution to supposedly protect the right to vote and assure equal protection, the immediate response was a backlash, a violent one, to restore white supremacy over the ballot. And political power is at the heart of maintaining these racial and economic inequities that we're talking about here. So in terms of what do folks need to do, you know, I think first just understanding the, the roots of this problem is important and that there really is a concerted effort on the other side among conservative judges, legislators, commentators to maintain the system of hoarding political power in the same way that we hoard wealth in the way our economy is structured, we hoard political power in the way our democracy is structured. So let's be clear-eyed about the problem. This isn't a problem of, this is an intentional problem. The, the second thing I'd say is that in terms of what to do about it, I'd, uh, here I'd point to three things. One is in the COVID moment, one of the things we're working with a lot of partners on is to assure, secure access to the ballot for black and brown communities uh, now and in November. So that means getting states to do modified versions of vote by mail, with additional protections and backstops to ensure that black and brown voters can actually access even a vote by mail system. Because if you do it off the shelf, it doesn't necessarily work. For How can we do that in states with Republican governors? Because it seems like Democratic governors are going to be much more amenable to the vote by mail. The president of the United States himself said if there was a vote just by mail, Republicans would lose every single thing uh, because he claimed voter fraud, but we're really thinking more because of voter access and participation. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, there's, uh, I mean, Texas is a good example right now where there's a lot of, um, uh, there's a lot of battle right now over vote by mail. I think a federal district court recently uh, had a, a ruling to, that was in favor of that, but it's, it's being fought out in real time in the state. So what I would offer is that this is not a done deal. There's pressure that can be brought to bear on state legislators, on state election officials, um, especially in states like Texas or Florida. We've been, we do a lot of work with grassroots groups that are doing the organizing and to bring that political pressure. Think of like a Texas organizing project, for example, amazing work in Texas or New Florida majority. There are lots of great groups that are working, focused on black and brown communities, working on these issues. So there's a the pressure on state officials. I think the other thing that I would 
also put on the table is that this is why every type of election, no matter how small the office, matters. So judicial elections, state, county, local elections, if we don't win those, uh, those races that are not in the headlines, then what happens is you play it forward five, 10 years from now, those same people who are now dependent on a system of voter suppression are now governors and senators and uh, they've worked their way up a corrupt system. So every election, every office is worth contesting. Yeah, I wanna, I wanna um, one, say I think you're exactly right, but like in Ferguson, we see that because of this systemic abuse and pressures and mar marginalization, the racial oppression, young people, yeah. especially poor people living below the poverty line, working class people, their votes tend to be lower. People who are making over 70, 80, yeah. 90, 100,000 a year, their votes tend to be higher. People who are over 65 years old, their votes tend to be higher, who have the sinecure of Medicaid, Medicare, rather, not Medicaid, and, and other social security. So what's so interesting is that this, this, there's a feedback loop where the racial oppression and the anti-democratic policies that are happening at the federal and the state and the local level, they sort of ensure um, a lack of voter participation. So sometimes, even for Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders made a claim he was going to be able to get young people to come out to vote. Right. They didn't come out in quite as robust numbers as, as he anticipated. But I would argue that a lot of that has to do with this deep systemic problems that we have where we don't register people to vote automatically in high school. We don't have a voting holiday. But also, because of Shelby V. Holder, we are doing voter suppression that comes right out of the 19th century playbook of poll taxes and grandfather clauses and, and convict lease system. I mean, it is, it's amazing, the, 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 not just the echoes, the way this has been replicated into the, into the 21st century. I wanna ask you, Sabil, while we're having this conversation, and you're one of the foremost policy experts in the country about democracy, when we think about COVID, what do you think about the federal bill that was passed, that was signed? What were the good, the bad of that bill? And what do we need? Uh, Democrats are talking about $30 billion more for testing, but I'm thinking about things like jobs, cash for people, forestalling evictions. Um, what, what about homelessness? What do you think about that bill? And really trillions of dollars are now earmarked to combat this virus, but who's going to get the money and who should get the money? Because right now, a lot of stuff is being done under the cover of COVID. It seems the president has a half a trillion dollars that he's saying is going to be earmarked for businesses at his own whim. We're seeing expenditures that we've never seen before in the history of the Republic, even with the 2008 Great Recession. So what do you think about the policy response so far and where should we go? Yeah, it's such an important question. I think right now uh, there's a lot, the, there are two big challenges. One is that the good things that have happened in the bill so far already, uh, there are some good things, you know, $1,200 for families, some supports for small businesses, uh, uh, things like that. But even those aspects have been uh, already, the lion's share of those resources are going to the people who already have the money and support that they need. There's a, a reporting in the last few weeks about how private equity firms, for example, were first in line to get those small business loans. And I'm sorry, but they are not the people who need that money. 
And then uh, Steve Mnuchin, Treasury Secretary, got on TV uh, yesterday and said, well, $1,200, that, that should last folks 10 months. Well, I don't know what folks he's thinking of, but that's not going to last people even a month's worth of rent and, and debt payments. So there's, there's a, uh, some uh, good things, but it just is not nearly enough, and there's way too little oversight. And uh, you know, corporate America is just getting whatever it wants from this first bill. So I think what, there's what, a, what should we do? What should we do? So, the next, so there's, there's a debate right now in Congress about trying to get a fourth bill through when Congress returns to session in D.C. Uh, at the beginning of May. That's going to be an uphill battle because the administration is fighting it tooth and nail. I think the more we can put pressure for a people's bailout that goes to especially working class folks, black and brown folks, people who really cannot, are already in calamity because of this crisis. That is the thing we need for this fourth bill, which might be the last one that we get for a while because then it's election season. So in this bill, I think there are three big priorities we need to focus on. One is immediate cash that goes directly to working families. Uh, Congresswoman Jayapal has a proposal out today about sustained payments, $2,000 a family per month. Uh, okay. That would continue through the end of the crisis that automatically renews. That's the kind of support we need. We need much more support for businesses and payrolls so that people aren't uh, getting cut from their jobs, that the jobs will be waiting for them well, when that's the crisis what, ends. That's what Denmark has done, right? Because absolutely, we have 22 million people who filed for unemployment. One other way we could have done it was just backstop everybody's work. Totally. Small business or not. Totally. And this is a really important point you're making that uh, folks should be really clear that the death that we're seeing and the job loss that we're seeing is a policy choice. It did not have to be this way. We have chosen because of how this administration has failed to respond or chosen to respond to make the pandemic worse because of their inability to respond. And we have chosen to have a policy that perpetuates job loss what because would be of the, the way we've what would the, the alternative is the, the alternative is uh, uh, much more support for payrolls, uh, like what's been happening in Denmark. Right, you essentially uh, backstop the payroll payments for businesses so that they don't have to cut people off of their payrolls. Um, expand unemployment insurance, which some of which has been done already, but actually extend that to uh, immigrant workers, uh, undocumented workers, folks who are not in, not able to access the UI system so that they can get uh, cash for basic necessities. And then you need uh, to alleviate the pressure of immediate bills. So no one should face any utility bills or utility shutoffs during this time. No one should face any debt payments during this time. Yeah. Uh, we need to backstop folks's, uh, folks's rent, keep them housing secure. All of this means Congress is going to have to spend that money and get it directly to support people to survive the, the shelter in place period. Right now, most of that money is going to the big players, the, 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 the people who are already don't need the support. Now, I want to um, really, for, for the, the last um, several minutes that we have, talk about healthcare and race, because yeah. one of Bernie Sanders' biggest uh, claims to fame during his campaign was this Medicare for all. And um, on some levels, I think that that's absolutely a brilliant idea. But I also think about black and brown communities and what would that mean for them? Uh, because even if we have Medicare for all, we're seeing because of racial segregation, zip codes and neighborhoods are not treated by institutions in an equitable manners. Some zip codes and race uh, uh, neighborhoods matter more than others. So one, what should our national, when we think about healthcare, 
because this is both a healthcare crisis, but it's a crisis of racial justice, the environment. Um, it's hitting so many black communities uh, more. Albany or, or Albany, Georgia, Louisiana, we're seeing yes. disproportionate black death. One, what can we do? What should we be doing in terms of healthcare um, in the future? Like, is this the moment to be talking about Medicare for all? And then specifically for black and brown folks who are one, disproportionately vulnerable, but also they're on the front lines as home health aid workers. And yeah. they work in these industries like both um, hospitals, uh, but also they work at the post office, for instance, and in other industries that were deemed vital, but that they were really, really vulnerable. No PPE, no protective equipment. So what should this do? Because healthcare is really a primary racial uh, justice issue. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So there are three things that I would point to here in particular. First, yes, Medicare for all, absolutely. We need to finally have universal health care that is decoupled from one's job that everyone can access that is single payer. That, but that's just a starting point. The second thing we need is uh, direct health and financial relief for those essential workers that you mentioned, right? These are predominantly black and brown workers who are putting their lives on the line for seven fifty an hour at a grocery store, right? That is, that is not, that in, in this country, we should be morally appalled that that is how we are operating in this moment. So we need an essential workers bill of rights that uh, gets them the PPE they need, that, that gets them the healthcare treatment that they need and actually provides for the kind of uh, economic security that these workers actually deserve from the beginning but now is the time we've got to make sure we get it to them. And then the third and final thing is, to your point about the historical inequities that accumulate on black and brown communities around health and around well-being, we need a sustained targeted investment in black and brown communities that finally speaks to the accumulated uh, toll of uh, pollution, of segregation, of uh, financial uh, debt and debt burdens, right? These are all related to what uh, help experts call the social determinants of health, right? Health is not just about physical health. It's totally bound up in one's economic security and, uh, and safety overall. And so all these types of racial justice questions really come to the fore around health because that the impacts show up in terms of people dying, people being sick, people being vulnerable. And we need to take this crisis to solve that. Absolutely. And even where we work, I mean, you'll see black folks working in restaurants, brown, brown folks Absolutely. Working, in restaurants, working at the airport, but not in front line, but in the back line capacity. So the people, yep. the planes, the people who clean the bathrooms at the airport, I go to Atlanta airport a lot, all black people. Um, and these are the people who are the most vulnerable. And a lot of times they're getting the least, the least wages. Um, all right, Sabil, my, my, you know, my last question is really, do you see any hope? Like what, what are, you know, the, you know uh, one of the things you think about President Franklin Roosevelt, Abraham Lincoln, um, even President Obama, you know, out of great crisis comes great opportunities. And so do you see any hope for, um, for, for the future? And, it's, but, and I'm thinking the future of American democracy and racial justice at the core, because this great crisis, 22 million unemployed, we realize black and brown. And I'm thinking hope for people who are homeless, people who are undocumented. 11 million people who should really immediately be made, be made citizens and have Absolutely. access to citizenship. Um, the people, tens of millions who have no health care, is there hope for who are segregated, who are incarcerated and sick right now? 
Um, so is there a context where this great crisis really produces something extraordinary? Yeah, I, I really do feel that we're on the cusp of uh, both out of urgency and out of opportunity, a massive reinvention of American democracy that for the first time can make good on our deep moral values of genuine inclusion and equity from a racial justice standpoint, from a standpoint of democracy. And you mentioned uh, Lincoln and FDR. This country has been through moments of tremendous devastation. This crisis is at that level of what we've suffered in the Civil War and in the Great Depression in terms of just how much death and suffering is happening. But it also means that it's really clear just how much needs to change, right? You mentioned Bernie Sanders earlier, you know, Sanders ran his campaign on the idea that the entire system needs to be remade. If anyone doubted that, you know, three months ago, it's really clear now that that is exactly right. And the last thing I would offer by way of hope is I actually think if you look at where the political debate was, even in 2014, what the big issues were, um, how, much the, uh, how much energy, grassroots energy there was in, among black and brown communities and working families to put pressure. We are in such a different world right now where the conversation, you know, yes, you have the, the president and the, and the far right uh, really raising a, a scary prospects of an authoritarian white supremacist country, but the politics among grassroots folks, among, among working folks, we have a, a, a different level of, of energy, of organizing, of urgency, uh, where our issues, you know, debt relief, uh, uh, environmental justice, climate, you know, these issues are front and center in a way that they weren't even four or five years ago. So I think this is actually uh, the time to put our foot on the gas and try to make the changes that we know need to be made come January and beyond. All right, we're gonna close on that note. Uh, you, Sabil uh, Rachman, president of Demos, he's reminding us like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. of the fierce urgency of now. And, and Dr. King talked about the fierce urgency of now in the context of racial and economic justice. And in the context of the Corona crisis, Corona is gonna set American democracy really at a crossroads. We are absolutely at a crossroads in terms of wealth inequality, in terms of how we treat immigrants, how we treat black and brown people, how we treat poor people, how we treat those who are incarcerated. And we're gonna to have to make very, very hard choices. Um, who has the right to vote? How do we define citizenship? Um, not in the near future, but right now. And so all of us who are interested in this work, we have to be, um, yes, praying and, and taking care of our communities, um, but also, uh, struggling and organizing wherever we're at, even while we shelter in place, um, to try to transform uh, American democracy and make this uh, nation, uh, like, like Sabil was saying, really uh, that moral and ethical leader that at our best we can be. Um, so this has been a, a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much. Uh, Sabil Rockman is president of Demos. He's the which is a think tank devoted to progressive democracy and issues of racial justice. He's also uh, an associate professor of law at Brooklyn Law School and co-chair of the Law and Political Economy Project. He's the author of Democracy Against Domination and Civic Power, uh, Rebuilding American Democracy in an Era of Crisis, which you can get at your independent bookstore. And he really is one of the um, most widely um, sought after speakers and authors uh, he writes for so many different publications, um, including uh, scholarly publications about small d democracy, democratic institutions, what we can do to turn this country 
uh, into a nation that is as great as our ideals. So thank you, Sabil. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode. And you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H. And our website, csrd.lbj.utexas.edu. And the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.